Listening to the Pre-Med Perspectives Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pre-Med Perspectives. I'm Lassia, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. His name is Mike Foster, and he's an M2 at Case Western Reserve's School of Medicine. And we're really excited to chat a lot about his story of redemption. So he's going to tell you a little bit more about this, but Mike applied to medical school the first time, and it didn't go exactly how he wanted it to go. He took two years, immersed himself in so many different activities, grew a lot, even scored 10 points higher on the MCAT, and now goes to a phenomenal medical school. So Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's my pleasure and thank you for making time out of your busy schedule to be here with me. So just to kind of jump in, uh, I gave your introduction and I know you have a TikTok that's pinned on your page about how you applied to medical school twice and what do you think is the reason you feel that your first cycle was not as successful as you wanted it to be? Yeah, I think there's a handful of reasons. Um, So one of them is the programs I applied to. Um, So I I just applied to programs I was really, really excited for. Um, So I knew my MCAT score at the time, it was a 509. Um, It wasn't necessarily the highest score in the books. I was happy with it, um, but it was a little bit lower than what I was hoping for. So when it came to deciding the schools, I, I decided at the time I would rather apply to programs I was really, really excited for and potentially risk not getting in then um, apply to and then matriculate to a program I wasn't so um, invested in. Um, and then I think something else was just, uh, you know, I was doing a lot as an undergrad and I didn't have a ton of clinical experience. My only clinical experience was shadowing. Um, so I think that's something that was lacking in my application. Um, and then just one more thing personally, and I didn't really even realize this until I was applying was I hadn't really thought critically about who I wanted to be a doctor for. Um, I, was, I, I knew I connected with people and I wanted to help people, but I didn't really dig a little bit deeper than that. Um, so something that I think was missing was just that vision of who I would be, what would my priorities be? Um, how would I uh, expand myself and serve my patients outside of the clinic. Um, So that was something I don't necessarily think was reflected um, in my application and necessarily sifted for, um, but that was something personally that was uh, missing the first time around. Yeah, I think it's really great that you were able to take this experience and, you know, you didn't just say, oh, my stats are low or, oh, I just feel like my interview didn't go well. It's great that you were able to introspect and come up with these actual deep, detailed reasons. How did you go about getting those reasons? Did you get feedback or were you unable to answer some secondaries or interview questions? Yeah, so for those unfamiliar, there's a website from the AAMC called MSTAR. MSTAR, it stands for Medical College Admissions Requirements. Um, So I opened my application file with my school. Um, I wrote my personal statement. I knew which schools I was applying to. And after I lined everything up, 
uh, MSTAR released the average MCAT scores. Um, and at the time I was the second class applying with the redesigned MCAT. And then it kind of hit me like, oh, I'm on the lower end of um, a lot of the programs I was applying to thinking about my MCAT. Um, so yes, so that was definitely something that, you know, kind of hit me, but I still decided to um, move forward. Um, at that point, I kind of felt like I couldn't really turn back. I was really invested and that was the vision I had for myself. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's good that you didn't let, you know, one road bump take you off of the path. I mean, clearly you have it in you. You did have it in you to make it as far as you did. And I think that sort of um, break that you needed in order to, you know, answer those questions for yourself is making you the successful med student you are today. But I talk a lot about this. Um, I have a lot of deans of admissions come on the podcast and they're always like, yeah, clinical experience, clinical experience, clinical experience. How do you think after getting that clinical experience, your application process was made better? I don't know if that question makes any sense. Right. So I think you know, one of the issues I ran into was when I was a freshman, I was talking to an upperclassman and she said, oh, all you have to do is shadow. You just have to show them that you uh, put in some time, you understand the role um, and that's all they need. And so from that one piece of feedback from the upperclassman, that's when, you know, I, I, I kind of built my four-year plan around that. Like I, I shadowed in between my freshman and sophomore year and then I in my mind, I checked that box. Um, but then in secondary applications and filling out my personal statement, when it came time to really um, explore what makes me tick and the, the clinical setting is so important in that, I definitely was lacking quite a bit. Um, you know, I don't know if I fully answered this, but some of the feedback I did receive was from um, Ohio State. That was one of the schools I applied to the first time um, out of all the schools that didn't accept me the first time, including ones that interviewed me, they were the only school that offered to give me feedback. So I definitely want to shout them out. Um, but they pulled up my personal statement and they looked over it and they said, you know, this, this personal statement shows who you are as a person. Um, it shows you can connect with people, but it's just not specific enough to medicine. Um, and so that was something that was really important to me when I was thinking about what I was going to do in my gap years. Um, but then also when I was writing my personal statement the second time, that was something that I really wanted to underscore. Absolutely. And I love how you were able to get that personalized feedback from someone, you know, if one school said it, other schools might have been thinking the same thing. So it was great that you could take that and move forward. Um, I remember when uh, Mr. Christian Esmond from your school came on um, our podcast. He was talking about how he was giving personalized feedback to someone. And uh, his personalized feedback was, hey, you don't have like clinical experience. You need to go get some before you apply next year. And he was like, I was so confused. He came back the next year with just another research assistant position. And he came and asked me, why didn't I get in? And he was like, well, I told you to go get clinical experience. So it's good that instead of being that person, you actually took their advice and move forward in a productive way that was going to pay off well um, in your second cycle. So I know that you talked a little bit about um, doing this clinical experience in the second application cycle. What other activities did you do and what type of clinical activities did you do during your second year? Yeah, so 
Yeah. So the first, before I answer that, one thing that comes to mind a lot is for physician assistants or PA programs, a lot of the times they're required 500 hours of clinical experience. And so if PAs are requiring that much, it's really interesting that medical schools are not requiring that much. Um, I know it's really tough. We have all of our pre-med requirements. We have to take the MCAT. We're trying to fit in research and volunteering. Um, but to anyone who's listening and they're still mapping out everything that they want to get done before they apply, definitely figure out that clinical experience and try to figure it out early just because a lot of times getting onboarded for a hospital or getting started with a scribing company or whatever it may be, a lot of the times that's a slow process getting started. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, I want to say something, and this is a little bit of a hot, spicy take, so I don't know if you'll agree with me. I think that deep down, that is most definitely a requirement for medical school, but there is no way that medical schools are going to come out and officially say that, I feel like, because one, like, actually not everyone has the resources to do that, and two, the bigger thing in my mind is, how are they going to reject people if, you know, this isn't one of the things they're rejecting people for. I don't think, I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like it's one of those hidden secrets that they're just not going to come out and say, but they're going to continue rejecting people for that. Yeah. And um, I've been conducting some admissions interviews for Case Western Reserve. And I've noticed that a lot of the, the applicants that I interview when they have robust clinical experiences, they're just able to articulate so much more strongly um, their approaches to medicine, um, they've overcome challenges related to medicine and that sort of thing. And for those listening who aren't familiar with what we mean by clinic, clinical experience, um, shadowing is part of it and it's important. Um, and that's something that I, I did, but I think shadowing plus um, is pretty important. So that might be scribing, it might be, be uh, a medical assistant, it might be volunteering and patient care hospice care, exactly. Um, so yeah, just uh, keep that on your radar. Um, so, so going back to how I spent time in my gap years, um, studying for the MCAT was priority number one. Um, so interesting story was when I kind of realized uh, after the first time I applied, I was on a couple wait lists, it was getting closer to April, May, um, I wasn't really getting any updates and it was time to come up with my plan B. I was really, really interested in volunteering for AmeriCorps. Um, so for those unfamiliar, AmeriCorps is kind of like a domestic Peace Corps. Um, you get placed um, somewhere in America, you're, you're addressing um, some sort of disparity or social issue. Um, they don't pay very well. Um, they, I think they give you a stipend that's either minimum wage or a little bit below minimum wage, but that's like being a um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, that was something that really, really appealed to me. I really wanted to grow personally during my gap years. Um, I applied, I actually got offered a couple positions, but then it just kind of hit me like I'd be working 40 plus hours a week and it just wasn't compatible with the, the study schedule that I needed um, to raise my MCAT score. Um, and I had a conversation with a friend who is, is not involved with medicine at all. And she, was, she broke it down for me better than anyone else. And she was saying, you have to do what you need to do to be a strong applicant. So even though um, personally working for AmeriCorps 
would be really fulfilling, right? If you're not going to ultimately end up being able to do what you want to do, then that's not going to be the right decision. And that it'd be better working part-time for a tutoring company and raising your MCAT score, maybe volunteering a little bit on the side than working those long hours and trying to fit it all in. Um, and that was exactly what I needed to hear. When I was studying the first time, I was interning at a nonprofit. And at the end of my workday, I just didn't have the energy to, to study. Um, so, so getting ready for the MCAT was definitely one of the top priorities. Um, the second priority was to get some hands-on experience in a community. Um, so I was a part-time teacher at an after-school center. And then after I took the MCAT, I took on an additional job teaching small groups at a school in Baltimore um, and just working with my students, um, listening to them, hearing uh, their perspectives on the world. Um, it was really fulfilling and it, it gave me a lot of momentum wanting to be a doctor and to address a lot of the health issues that weren't being addressed in my students so that they could learn better. Um, my third goal was to get more clinical experience. And so I did get some, I didn't get as much as I would have liked, um, but that was the first time I volunteered in a clinical setting. Um, so that was, that was something that was really important for me to make arrangements for. And that's something that I wish I started making arrangements for earlier in my gap years. Yeah. And you know, that's okay that it didn't come during the four years, at least it came after there's so many people who spend their gap years who, who will come and say like, Hey, I didn't spend my gap years very well, but it seems like you had a really, um, diverse experience where you got to learn more about yourself and learn more about the field you're going into. And I love um, hearing about medical students who are teachers in the past. I've been tutoring the SAT and ACT since like I was in 11th grade. I'm a TA. And I think it's so like awesome how those teaching skills that you build up during, you know, your time as not being a doctor could potentially pay off as you're being a doctor could go on a tangent there but um those are i i really like teaching as uh, one of those jobs because ultimately as a physician uh you hope to teach your patients on how they get to live healthier lifestyles but how i mean emotionally how were you doing during this time i mean i bet it was pretty emotionally draining you didn't know if your work was going to pay off how did you kind of manage to fight those demons right um so when I was picking schools, you know, I, I saw I was below average, but then you look at the range and it's like, okay, well, I'm technically like 25th percentile or, or somewhere in the range. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that was encouraging or, or if it was just kind of like false hope or whatever. Um, but yeah, so, so I went to college at Rice University, which is in Texas. Um, so most of my classmates that were applying were Texas residents. They use a different application yeah, system. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so they, they interview a lot earlier, um, typically through the TMD SAS um, system. So at first, when a lot of my friends were getting interviews, some of them got interviews before we even started our senior year. Um, you know, I could tell myself, oh, well, it's because it's they're a Texas resident. That's why. Um, and then it was September and then October and I just wasn't getting any interview offers and um, that's when the rejection started rolling in um, the same time I tore my ACL like I spilled water on my laptop and had to get it fixed and there was just a lot of tough stuff going on and just it, it was really overwhelming and you know I I was comparing myself to my peers and 
I felt like I would have been a really good doctor. And it was really frustrating because I knew that about myself um, and it just wasn't being reflected in the outcomes. Um, in January is when I received two interview offers. Um, one was in February and one was in March. Um, so I was so hopeful during that time. I was like, wow, I'm so grateful for these two opportunities. I think both of them were on the last interview day or second to last interview day. Um, so typically, um, the later the interview, it's a little bit tougher to get in just because there's fewer spots in the class remaining at that point. But I still knew I had a shot. Um, so I was so excited. I was researching the schools, um, trying to envision what it'd be like there. Um, so I had my two interviews. I think they went well. Um, I don't think there were any issues or anything, but I was waitlisted at both schools. So I, I, it's kind of discouraging to be waitlisted, but you know, there's still a chance to get off the waitlist. Um, and then I kept waiting April, May, um, June. And then at that point, it was like, by June, your chances of getting off the waitlist are pretty slim. Um, and then both of the schools started, I think, beginning of August. So like first day of classes is technically when you know um, that you're not accepted. Um, so it was, so in summary, it was a lot of discouragement, a, a sharp spike of hope, and then like a slow decline um, of that hope. Um, and so after all of that, I just, I needed to give myself a moment to recharge, um, give myself time to ponder, is this something I actually want to do? Um, that's really important. And I also decided there's too much for me to do if I immediately reapplied. Um, so I wanted to give myself a full year and then reapply just because if I was going to reapply, I wanted to make sure I was the best applicant I could be. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know more about this than I do as an interviewer, but um, as the applicant, a lot of schools have a section that says, you know, what have you done differently this time around? And I feel like you're more, you're more looked at in the sense that did you actually put in the work needed to do that reflection and put bring to the table what you needed to bring to the table, right? So um, it definitely is good that you took that time and evidently it paid off. You go to case now. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Lassie and I hope you're enjoying this episode thus far. I'm chiming in to bring you our MCAT moment sponsored by Pillar Prep Test Prep, the home of empowered MCAT test retakers. As you heard in this episode, Mike needed to retake the MCAT. If you're in the same boat, Pillar Test Prep has some great resources for you. Paige, a past client, said, Pillar Prep has been extremely helpful in boosting my confidence by mentoring me and providing me with the tools and resources I needed. To know more about your how your retake can be improved, visit www.pillartestprep.com slash the-retaker-course to learn more helpful tips about the MCAT and use code ALLCAPS PREMED PERSPECTIVE for 20% off the course. I hope you enjoyed the rest of this episode. Yeah, um, so pretty much every medical school is going to have a part in your application under your secondary application um, to, to state what you did during your gap years. It's kind of frustrating because every school's word count is a little bit different. Um, so you're just going to be cutting down, re-adding things um, into all of that. Um, for the schools that I reapplied to, I can't remember if I included that in my application or not. 
But what's pretty interesting is two of the schools that rejected me the first time around ended up interviewing me the second time around. And the two schools I interviewed at the first time around did not interview me the second time around. Um, so there is this element of randomness um, that I, I think is kind of hard to grapple with. Um, it's, uh, you, you hear these miracle stories of someone with you know, not the best stats that gets into this amazing school and you hear these horror stories of someone with perfect stats that doesn't get in anywhere. Um, so, I mean, part of it is just being honest with yourself, how, how much do you wanna be a doctor? Are you willing to put up with you know, that potential turmoil in the application process? Um, maybe multiple times. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you feel that strongly and that connected to that career, then um, it's, it's definitely worth the battle. Absolutely. I think getting into med school is only the start of the battle, even though uh, right now for someone as young as me, it feels like the victory, right? So uh, it's, it's so interesting to look at medicine, medicine as a whole, like even after you match for residency, there's always like, oh, am I going to be able to get that fellowship? Oh, am I going to be able to get this position? So I think it's great that you had that experience to kind of toughen yourself um, and bring yourself to the level to understand and appreciate your future career. But, you know, now that you have some experience as a medical student and went through this tumultuous and very emotionally draining experience um what's something you'd say to someone whose you know application cycle isn't going that well or for someone who doesn't feel like they have very much hope applying next cycle yeah so before i answer that question one thing i do want to remind everyone is that only 40 percent of people who apply to um, md programs end up matriculating um, whereas even the most competitive specialties it's like 70% end up matriculating. So you are constantly having things to apply to. They are going to be selective, but I would say that getting into medical school is, is the lowest um, rate of acceptance. So that's something to keep in mind if you, if you feel like um, there, it's just too many battles. Um, the, the hardest one is upfront, which is kind of nice um, because, you know, if it doesn't work out, you just know if you power through this, you know, you, you're not done, but but it is more manageable. Um, so as far as advice for someone who doesn't quite get the application results that they want, um, a, a really big one is being honest and being humble. Um, so, you know, being, being honest, right? Maybe, maybe you had the perfect stats, but maybe your personal statement was underwhelming. Um, maybe you worked really hard in undergrad, but maybe your GPA was just a little bit too low. Um, so, so part of it comes from personal reflection, but then also part of it comes from seeking the feedback of others. A good starting place would be the academic advising office at your undergraduate institution. Um, it's their job to help you. Uh, you pay their salaries, so uh, you, you, they have to help you. Um, I know some school or some individuals I know they weren't really a fan of the advising offices. Um, so, I mean, you could ask for help from a friend. Um, you can reach out to med schools that you um, are interested in or maybe you applied to and didn't um, get accepted into. A lot of the schools, though, when they send rejections, they send like, please don't contact us because we have so many 
people. So that, that was kind of discouraging because I genuinely wanted to know what can I do? Um, so it, it, it is frustrating knowing that I took the time to apply to a program and, and paid and they're not willing to meet me halfway, but um, that's something out of my control. And um, so maybe, maybe reach out to a brand new program. Maybe uh, if there's a school locally, like a local university, maybe they, they'd be willing to talk to you. Um, and then I, th I think also, uh, you know, maybe just doing research online, like what are the, what are the kinds of things that people are doing? I mentioned MSAR earlier. If you pull up a school in MSAR, it gives you the breakdown of what percent of matriculated students had um, clinical volunteering, what percent had research, what percent were in the military. It, it really breaks it down for you. So if you see 85% of people at this school did research and you don't have any research, that tells you, oh, that's probably something to work on before you reapply. Definitely. And um, there's also so many really good resources um, online, uh, such as medical school headquarters on YouTube. Uh, since, you know, you were just talking about how to reflect on what you did wrong during your application cycle. Uh, his name is Dr. Ryan Gray. He actually opens up people's AMC or ACOMIS or TMDSAS applications, and he is an admissions officer, counselor, I believe, and he will like literally read everything, highlight everything that's wrong with it and publish it. Um, so if anyone's listening to this and they're like, I have no idea where I went wrong, uh, definitely take a look at medical school headquarters with Dr. Ryan Grit. In addition to everything that you were just stating, I feel like it's always good to have uh, a bunch of those resources. But thank you so much, Mike, for joining me today. It was really awesome being able to talk to you. And I think it's really important um, that people get to hear these vulnerable stories because, you know, it's not it's not a rainbow for everyone. And I really, really appreciate your honesty and sincerity and your time in talking to me today. Yes, absolutely. And just one last thing I want to end on is... Um, if you have this vision in your head, right, you, you want to go straight from undergrad to med school, I think that's great. But if it doesn't end up working that way, I think it's important to think about the value of your gap years. So um, it's, it's time to, to explore who you are when you're not a student. And that's something that people that don't take gap years are never going to experience. Um, and, and one more thing was, um, I was financially independent during my gap years. And, and that allows me to better understand a lot um, the, the struggles that some of my future patients are going to have, you know, having to decide, you know, with an hourly wage, like when I was working at the school and there was a school day, it was, it was a bad day for me because I needed, I needed the money. Um, and, you know, deciding like, oh, I can't take that trip. Oh, I, I have to buy this at the grocery store because, you know, I can't afford the other option. Um, so, so there's definitely a huge silver lining and a huge component to your education through your gap years, um, even if it's not the, the traditional academic setting. Yeah, I really love how you, throughout this entire conversation, I can really tell that you're someone who looks at the glass half full instead of glass half empty. And I think that's something that your patients will also really, really appreciate about you. And that's that's great that you highlighted during your gap years. You're going to be learning all those things you could never learn in the classroom or under the bubble of undergrad. So that was a really, really powerful and humbling note to end on. But thank you once again so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me.
Of course. And to our listeners, tune back in next Friday for yet another episode. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay safe. Bye, guys.